0: Back for another mini-episode of Radio vs. the Martians. I'm Mike Gillis.
1: And I'm Casey Doran.
0: And we are going to look back at our last George Lucas panel, look forward to our next panel episode for next month, and talk about some of the latest geek news that's been happening recently. But first, let's look at some of your feedback. The email we got about our Lucas episode is from Bethany Turner. She says, Thanks for the latest episode. I was scared going in. "...but I must say that while I disagree with a lot of what was said, I felt the discussion was very even-handed and fair. I can understand a lot of the reasons for the opinions given, even if I don't share them. This is not, as I feared, just another opportunity to bash George Lucas, which I've become very sick over the last decade or more. Moreover, as with any in-depth discussion of someone as complex as Lucas and Star Wars, there were plenty of areas where we agree." Thank you again for the fair discussion of George Lucas and Star Wars. We don't agree on everything, but it's tremendously refreshing to hear some cool-headed discussion rather than the usual Lucas-bashing diatribes I've become so used to. Thank you, and I look forward to the next episode.
1: That's so refreshing to hear, Mike, because the listeners won't know how many months we spent talking about what we should and shouldn't be including as part of the discussion, because I don't think anyone really at this point wants to hear an hour and a half of fanboy circle jerk about uh, how much we hate george lucas and how he should burn
0: yeah this is something that we've seen over and over and over again in the geek corner of the internet we've seen too many takedowns over why phantom menace is awful as we recommended on the episode please check out the folks at red letter media they do a better job than we could possibly do taking down those movies we're past it i think that really coming on 10 years after revenge of the sith came out i think we can let go of the collective nerd trauma and realize that there's things from george lucas that we actually like speaking of the discussion that we have we were talking a bit about the ewoks television movies from 1984 and 1985
1: and i was right I was right.
0: You were right, actually, when you mentioned that Wilfred Brimley of Quaker Oats and Diabetes (laughs) fame did in fact star in Ewoks the Battle for Endor, and it gets even better than that. Ewoks the Battle for Endor, which is essentially the Care Bears starring in Lord of the Rings, does involve a scene where Wilfred Brimley gets into a sword fight (laughs) against what is apparently an orc with a scimitar so if that isn't reason enough to go check out that movie on youtube i can't name a better one but i will say that while trying to determine who was right about whether wilford brimley starred in an ewoks television movie i came across a podcast that i think i would love to pass along to you guys it's called the we hate movies podcast which has an Excellent rundown of both the Ewoks movies. I highly recommend their Battle for Endor episode. Their commentary on the weird Ted Kaczynski-esque proclivities of the Wilfred Brimley character is just... Pure gold. I think they referred to him as a surly delight.
1: <laughs> the very little that I do remember about the movie involved some kind of a fuzzy, furry little critter guy that uh, Wilfred Brimley takes into into his house. Except the thing about it is, is that it's just a kid or a little person wearing a costume, and there's no mouth movement or eye movement or anything. It's just a static plastic head that looks so utterly fake. And next to the, you know, the really quite good makeup effects, creature effects in the Star Wars movies, it was a sad, sad day.
0: Well, clearly they don't have the budget. I mean, it's a television production and it's not like they're going to pull industrial light and magic off of one of their big feature films to be able to to produce a television special. I mean, obviously these things were made on the cheap. The weird thing is despite their overt cheapness, They're still better than the prequels.
1: Oh, that sounds like a a call to action to any listeners right there. Is Ewoks, The Battle for Endor, a better movie than Phantom Menace? I don't know. I don't know.
0: Yes. Yes. (laughs) Speaking of other George Lucas stuff that we didn't get around to talking about, I was really hoping that we would talk about Willow a little bit.
1: I can remember being incredibly excited for Willow coming out because there weren't too many. I mean, other than Lady Hawk, there weren't really too many fantasy movies that were coming out. And I think looking back on it now, they don't have too many amazing locations or incredible sets. However, it's a great adventure family romp of a movie. It's actually and it's really well done.
0: I think it holds up pretty well, and especially when you look at its contemporaries. I mean, we're talking about fantasy films prior to the Lord of the Rings movies that Peter Jackson put out. So, really, if you look at that, you're, like, thinking Masters of the Universe, Beastmaster. Red Sonja. Yeah, the Conan movies, I mean, where it really kind of feels like they just drive out to the California desert and film some stuff out there, but for the most part... It never really feels like it's very big. There's a sense of cheapness about it. Maybe some of the extras had to provide their own costumes. Fantasy films for the long time was something that Hollywood was not willing to spend money on. And and I would say 2001 with Stanley Kubrick were the first movies that really convinced Hollywood that science fiction was worth spending money on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We never really got that place with fantasy films until we got to Peter Jackson. But I think that George Lucas made a pretty decent attempt with Willow. I mean, it doesn't feel as big as Star Wars. I mean, of course, you can make the argument that this is a story that takes place on perhaps a single country or continent versus Star Wars, which is on multiple planets and has a city-sized battle station. Mm -hmm. But it never feels like the scenes in Willow get much bigger than a football field. You never get the sense of immense vastness that you would with The Star Wars movies where things feel like you are on a new planet and then that horizon goes on for miles and miles. But, you know, given what I'm sure the studio was willing to give George Lucas and Ron Howard, they'd made a good attempt at a fantasy film. And it feels a little bit and I know this is based entirely off of speculation and not based on any kind of evidence that I've heard, but it feels a little bit like Willow is a movie that came out of them trying and failing to get a Lord of the Rings or Hobbit license.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: Because it has a lot of those same qualities where it's a bucolic village of little people who get pulled into an adventure against a Dark Lord, in this case, an evil witch, and... I, you know, I'm glad. It kind of feels good that George Lucas in the 80s had tried to branch out from that. It's just a shame. I mean, as a fantasy fan, it feels like we always kind of had to bite our tongue a little bit because we love the genre so much, but it kind of felt like the stuff Hollywood would give us in live action felt a little cheap and we had a tendency to get really kind of defensive about it. It's kind of nice that that's actually changed.
1: Well, I'd say that now I really have to agree with what you ended up saying. I mean, it smacks of being a Hobbit derivative sort of work. But I mean, I don't know if, if before Willow, I was aware that Billy Barty was an actor. And I think Billy Barty, as a presence in the pantheon of Hollywood character actors, was cemented by that. I feel that Billy Barty's performance in that movie cements himself in the pantheon of Hollywood character actors. And not only that, I mean Warwick Davis. Now, of course, what was his claim to fame before then? He wore a costume, you know, he wore an Ewok mask in Return of the Jedi.
0: But Willow was the first movie where he was allowed to not wear that mask. It was a nice change of pace where a little person wasn't just a character in a creature mask.
1: Exactly, exactly.
0: And you had him as actually the leading man and lead character of a fantasy film. And I like Warwick Davis. I think he's a talented actor, and it's really unfortunate that he hasn't gotten better roles to the degree of of an actor like Peter Dinklage currently does on Game of Thrones. But the role of Tyrion Lannister is a remarkably rare one for a dwarf actor. And I'm really glad that it fell into the capable hands of Peter Dinklage, who is a remarkably talented actor. So uh, moving on, there was a bit of an update since our last mini episode on the giant Xbox debacle.
1: Oh, goodness gracious. Yes, it's now being known as the Xbox 180. I wish I would have coined that term myself. I really do.
0: (laughs) When we last joined Xbox, they had decided that it was just not feasible to go door to door and punch each one of its customers in the face. <laughs> so they decided to make their new video game console as completely detestable as possible. It seems the internet was not happy, predictably, and they have reversed on anything. Now, trading a game means just handing it to your friend, rather than going through this elaborate system where every time a new person owns this used game, Microsoft gets a chunk of change. It's like if I were again, if I'm going to sell Casey my used car and Ford wants another pound of flesh from me, all of that stuff is done. You don't have to be online every 24 hours so people with an unreliable internet connection can once again actually enjoy modern gaming. And you no longer have to install the games on the device. You can actually play them off of the disc. So we're looking at a game system that looks a lot like the one that we're used to. And I won't lie and say that PlayStation 4 deciding not to chop its own head off didn't have something to do with Microsoft having a change of heart. I'm not going to pretend like this is a Grinch moment where Cindy Lou Who made the Microsoft's heart grow three sizes. I think this is more about this huge exodus of fans saying, you know, fuck those guys. PlayStation 4 is not going to screw me around. I'm going with them. And I imagine that pre-orders for the Xbox One went way down and pre-orders for the PlayStation 4 went way up.
1: Yeah, as much as everyone wants to believe that somehow, if we collectively whine on the internet, somehow you'll be able to reverse whole decisions that happen here. No, it was certainly the PS4 showing and their outright mockery of Xbox One's used game policy that caused the reverse. And then, of course, like you said, looking at the pre-orders that are there. And add to that just the incredibly confused and inconsistent and stupid, stupid, stupid things that Microsoft spokespeople were making in and around the first reveal and around E3.
0: The other piece of news that's coming out of geek circles is that white smoke has been seen above
1: (laughs) BBC studios.
0: The new doctor has been announced. And Matt Smith, who is a remarkably popular actor who's been playing the character of the Doctor for the past three years, is stepping down after the Christmas episode of this year and will be replaced by Peter Capaldi, who is a respected 55-year-old British actor who's well-known on TV in the UK for playing the foul-mouthed political operative on In the Thick of It. This is not something that a lot of people saw coming because they've been moving progressively younger and younger with the actors who've played the Doctor. Matt Smith, the most recent actor, was, I believe, at 26 or 27, the youngest actor to take on the role. Wow! He's universally beloved. He's also the first actor to be in the role when it finally became popular in the United States. In a lot of ways, Doctor Who is a lot like soccer. <laughs> it was huge everywhere but the United States for the longest time. Finally, it broke through. For those people who are not Doctor Who fans, it's about an immortal alien who travels through time and space, battles monsters, saves planets. Because it's a live action show, obviously you can't have the same actor playing this character since the 60s. So periodically, the doctor dies, but his species, instead of dying, regenerates into a new person altogether with their own quirks, their own proclivities, their own motivations, their own personalities. There's a couple things like he's a super genius and he's sort of idiosyncratic and he's sort of unusual. But for the most part, every actor has that opportunity, like with James Bond to a lesser extent, to create their own doctor. So basically, this is the changeover and fans go through the same cycle every single time. At first, they are in love with this actor. They love this doctor. He's been doctor for a couple years. He's great. He's awesome. Oh, my God, he just announced he's leaving at the end of the year. The show is over. They're going to have to cancel it. He's way too popular. What are we ever going to do? (laughs) And then they announce a new guy. Oh, I don't like him. He's weird. I can't see him in the role. Oh, my God, they're going to cancel it. Who can follow up this guy? He's so awesome. Then the guy switches over. Three episodes later, they fucking love the new guy. I hope he stays around forever. I hope he never goes anywhere. couple years later, oh, this new guy's going to leave. Oh, my God, the show's over. He's going to get canceled. It's never going to go from here. Oh, that new guy looks weird. And we're just going through that cycle. But I think this is the first time we've gone through this cycle where an American audience is part of that discussion. To a lesser extent, they were there when the last changeover, but... Doctor Who has become so popular over the last couple of years. When I was at Comic-Con, I saw so much Doctor Who cosplay.
1: I mean, it owned Comic-Con. I'm really going to be interested to see how this plays out.
0: Yeah, Doctor Who is is one of those shows that, again, it's just going to change in a couple of years. So you know what? Enjoy the ride.
1: <laughs>
0: so speaking of another less fun kind of ride, <laughs> Orson Scott Card, the author of Ender's Game, And famous, professional homophobe has finally responded to the anger and backlash and proposed boycott of the movie based on the book that he wrote. Now, Orson Scott Card, and if you want to really understand why people are angry about this, I want to be very clear. There's going to be some fans of our show that feel like they're on the opposite side of this issue, and they feel very strongly and very sincerely on the opposite side of this issue as Casey and myself. And I just want to say with all due respect to all of the people on the other side of the issue, get fucked and die.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but at least understand our reasons first. <laughs>
0: Essentially, uh, with Orson Scott Card, we're not just talking about somebody who has homophobic feelings and that doesn't feel that same-sex couples should have the same marriage rights as heterosexual couples. We're talking about somebody who's an activist for that cause. We're talking about somebody who spends money and calories fighting equal rights and spending a portion of all the money that comes from his books and royalties from his movies in the effort of fighting same-sex marriage equality, let alone adoption rights and a litany of other equalities that same-sex couples are frequently denied in most states still in this country. So we're not talking about somebody who we just disagree with on a political issue. We're talking about somebody who, for every ticket I buy to the Ender's Game movie, am partially subsidizing that a fraction of that ticket price will go to a political campaign that I find abhorrent. Mm-hmm. So that's really where the anger is coming from. So after a lot of this buildup, Orson Scott Card has finally responded. And he said... Due to the Supreme Court rulings, the issue is currently moot. So give me your money.
1: That is such a weaselly way for him to actually respond to it, which is for him to distance himself from the actual content of his beliefs and what he will do with his movie and just say, oh, well, if it's a matter of law, it's that. No, I mean, we obviously know that legislators can do things like make the Defense Against the Marriage Act. And if there were another political swing in this country, it might be vogue to reinstate legal discrimination for same-sex couples. So he's sort of wanting to have his cake and eat it too, and he is backed up by a great amount of the fan base of moviegoers who say, well, I don't care about the politics of the people who make these movies. I just go see movies uh, because I like them.
0: That's a fair stance, and I'm not going to argue with their right to make a different decision for me. And our good friend Sam Mulvey has actually come up with a word for this, using Orson Scott Card as the basis. And it's called the card line. Hmm. And the card line is the place at which an artist's beliefs become so abhorrent that you can't separate them from their art. You don't want to support a person who's going to use the money you give them for that art that may not reference those beliefs, but they will take that portion of that money that you've given them to go forward those beliefs and try to put them into political action. Right. And I think that's the case here with Arthur Scott Card. He can just go, yeah, well, we lost it to the Supreme Court, so it's all over now. You didn't change your mind on that. You're not. You're going to continue to support the National Organization for Marriage, the largest national organization that exists solely to fight gay rights. Where, by the way, it's still legal discrimination in most of the country. A majority of the states still have legal discrimination. You can still get fired for being gay in most states. So he can't pretend like he isn't still spending money to make that momentum a lot
1: slower. I want to get your take on this, Mike. Do you actively avoid, say, going to see Roman Polanski's movies because of his behavior of, of it being convicted and, and ejected from the United States. Is this a category where you would fall in line sort of with your support of the boycott of Orson Scott Card?
0: I would. I don't want to support something like that. And I'm actively disgusted when I hear artists try to pretend that him having sex with a 13-year-old girl is somehow irrelevant as long as the movie's good. <laughs> and actively <laughs> applaud him, even though he fled the United States and is living in France so so that he can't be arrested for it. I think that sort of thing is actively pretty disgusting in saying that you have carte blanche to be a terrible person and do terrible things, provided your art is good enough. And I don't buy that, because, I mean, I imagine we see all kinds of horror stories on the news all the time, and I don't wonder, well, maybe that guy's a really good painter. Does that really change the fact that he just butchered a family? Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. what if he was? What if this guy wrote the greatest novel that will ever be written. And it's glorious. Does that really change the fact that he's committed this horrible act or that he takes money he receives for this art and uses it towards something terrible that actually negatively affects the lives of people? And I want to hear from you, the audience, where do you stand on this? Do you feel that artists and their art should be completely separate? As they say, the artist is dead and the art has to stand on its own. Or do you take into account somebody's personal views, like a Tom Cruise or a Mel Gibson? Do you say, you know what? That person's terrible. I don't want to support them. Where do you stand on it? Send us an email at info at radio versus the Message us on Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. I think it's about time for us to announce the next panel episode of Radio versus the Martians.
1: Oh, this is going to be
0: awesome. In lieu of the 75th anniversary of this character's creation back in 1938. We're going to talk about Superman. We're going to talk about the Man of Steel, the Man of Tomorrow, the last son of Krypton. We're going to talk about the granddaddy of all superheroes, one of the most recognizable fictional characters who's existed in animation, in comic books, in film, in television. Superman has been a part of just about every form of entertainment media that has ever been devised so we are going to talk about this character's history we're going to talk about where Superman has been where Superman is going and where we think Superman in both comic book and future film is going to be going into the future. I think that's about all the time we got. I'm Mike Gillis
1: I'm Casey Doran. Thanks so much for joining us
0: and we will see you on the next panel episode of Radio vs. the Martians Radio vs. the Martians is produced by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. Our editor was Mike Gillis. Our theme music was written and performed by Todd Maxfield Matsumoto. Find us online at radioversusthemartians.com and send us your feedback at info at Radio the Martians.com.